Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. On this week's podcast, Senator Richard Burr has a new user fee bill out. Growing pains for Swiss Pharma Novartis and clinical developments for clean and ALS and Verve in base editing. Plus, we look at FDA's neurodegeneration therapy blueprint. But first, a word from our sponsor. The future of biopharma innovation now rests on the creation of trusted cross-border relationships to succeed at product development and create ROI for investors. That will be the focus of BioCentury and Bay Helix's East-West Biopharma Summit. Register now for the event. It takes place November 14th through 16th in the San Francisco Bay Area. For those of you familiar with the BioCentury Bay Helix China Healthcare Summit, this VIP event incorporates the China Healthcare Summit. Register now. You can go to biocentury.com and get all the information that you need. All right, let's head right to Washington. Senator Richard Burr has introduced a new medical products user fee reauthorization bill. He's urging his colleagues to pass it quickly. We all are already aware of the tensions in the Senate about getting any legislation through. Steve, what's going on here and what's at stake? What's at stake is a lot. The user fee bills, that's uh, user fees for prescription drugs, for generic drugs, for biosimilars, for medical devices, all expire at the end of September. If they're not reauthorized, then FDA has to fire all of its staff that are hired by user fees. That's more than half of their staff that reviews medical products. Along with them departing, the user fee goals would go away. We'd be back to the bad old days when FDA is understaffed and, um, and underperforms, and everybody would be worse off. So what Senator Burr has done, he's the ranking member, ranking Republican on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. And he's not only has he introduced a bill that only has user fee reauthorization and strips out all of the other policies that his colleagues want to attach to the bill, but he said that he won't vote for, and he'll urge his colleagues not to vote for a more expansive bill. And this, like everything else that we've been hearing about for the last couple of years in Washington, requires 60 senators to go through. Burr is quite likely to be able to pull the vast majority of um, the Republican caucus along with him. He's really got the authoritative voice on issues having to do with FDA and the Republican Party. People have to take this seriously. Has to take it even more seriously because the clock is ticking and it's ticking very loudly. Steve, why is he taking this approach? I think that it's a combination of things. He's he's immensely frustrated at FDA. Uh, Rob Califf is commissioner because Burr supported him and brought along enough Republicans to overcome objections from Democrats who opposed Califf. But Burr believes that FDA and Califf have badly bungled on infant formula. He doesn't want to give the agency additional responsibilities or power. And maybe more fundamentally, he doesn't believe that it's possible to come to agreement between 
the House and the Senate on all of the complex set of policies that both bodies want to attach to user fee reauthorization in time to get the bills through Congress on the time frame that that's necessary. So he's basically saying, look, keep it simple. Just do the user fee reauthorization. Don't get hung up in conflicts over things that are less essential than that. And the, the clock is ticking. On the one hand, I, I mentioned before that user fees expire at the end of September, but FDA has contracts with its labor unions that say that it has to provide 60 days notice of layoffs. If user fees are not reauthorized, of course, there will be massive layoffs. So under that agreement, FDA is supposed to send out notices to all of the staff who may lose their jobs 60 days in advance. That means August 1st. There is some precedent for this. A similar situation happened under then Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, and he avoided sending out the pink slips, but that was because he was able to make a public statement saying that a deal was imminent, that Congress was just about to pass the user fee reauthorization, and that was true at the time. It isn't likely that Caliph could make the same argument today, and it isn't likely that he's going to be able to avoid sending out pink slips on August 1st if there isn't a great deal more movement than there is right now. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. Let's turn to Novartis. Getting better sales out of the products that make it to market is a central component of Novartis's recent shakeup. That includes, in part, layoffs for as many as 8,000 employees. BioCentury Editor-in-Chief Simone Fishburne recently sat down with Marie-France Schuden, the recently appointed Chief Commercial Officer and Head of Novartis's Innovative Medicines International Unit. Schuden said the pharma's commercial model is obsolete, saying that the biopharma ecosystem is completely different than what it once was. Stephen, what's going on at Novartis? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. I think part of the comment around being obsolete just relates back to the original model they had. So originally, Novartis had set up a, an oncology unit and a pharmaceuticals unit. And those were largely based on sort of the 90s, early 2000s, where you had the pharmaceuticals portfolio was largely primary care focused, and then oncology was your specialty care. And so those were two very different markets serving two very different customer bases, which is why they had it divided that way. But if you look at now at Novartis's portfolio, even in the pharmaceutical space, it's almost all specialty care. So there really is not much distinction between how you go about treating those, which is why I think they're looking to make the simplification and shift to this more geographical-based split of their commercial units. The other reason for that is because, frankly, they're, they're not doing as well as they would like to in the U.S., Vaz said as much during this reorganization back in April that essentially the U.S. is where they need to really try and pick up pace. And Vaz, of course, referring to the CEO of the company, Vaz Narasimhan. I'd like to bring in Lauren. Lauren Shuden spoke with Simone at some length about the pharma's commercial model. How is the company trying to move this model forward? So one thing that you already mentioned, Jeff, was focusing on getting more sales out of the, the marketed pipeline. One interesting thing that came out of that conversation, I think, is the fact that they're talking about changing who they're targeting with the marketing. 
you know, so much of the decision-making for patients is made by patients and by patient families now. So there has to be some level of targeting to the actual patients themselves, not just to the providers. Some other things that they mentioned, I know that in terms of pipeline strategy for future commercialization, they're going to be focusing on products that have a $2 billion market potential. Yeah. And I think, Lauren, the other thing that she was talking about was really trying to marry the scientific data that they're producing with a more digital approach to really try and make it a lot more sort of a seamless provision of information to the end users that they see, which are, you know, the healthcare professionals and patients. The one aspect that I thought about the conversation that they had that I thought was quite interesting was Shudan mentioned how she thought there was really excessive waste in the U.S. healthcare system, such that, for instance, I think she mentioned there was about one third of all prescriptions basically go unfilled. She was really kind of pointing to, you know, if you can improve access and improve information for these folks, you might be able to improve the uptake and basically getting all those prescriptions filled. But we did do a little bit of the sort of the back of the envelope math here. And if you think about small molecules being the primary things that you're going to get prescriptions filled for at a pharmacy. So we looked through the pipeline for Novartis. And even if you were to have a huge increase in the uptake or improved uptake of their small molecule portfolio, you're probably really only talking two or $3 billion extra in sales per year in the US. And that's just not going to cut it to kind of reach what Novartis wants, because that is the one thing that, that um, Vaz mentioned in, in April is that he wants Novartis to be a top five pharma in the US. Right now, they are 11th. And there's a roughly $10 billion gap per year between them and Roche, who is in fifth place. That's a lot of space to make up. And I think the challenge that they have is, so they also called out six different drugs that they see as their near to midterm growth drivers, one being their most highest selling drug, Cosentix, um, autoimmune drug, Entresto, Dolgensma, their SMA drug, Kiskali, their CDK4-6 inhibitor, Casempta, which is their new MS drug, and then like VO, which is their... Uh, uh, Inclizarin, which is the PCSK9 inhibitor. We dove in to look at each of these and several of them are doing doing quite well. For instance, Entresto is still growing quite well. They just added preserved ejection fraction to that label. So, you know, that drug's doing quite well, but that's one where they could potentially be facing, you know, generics as early as 2026. So that's something that is potentially going to be going away in the medium term. If you look at Cosentix, Plaque psoriasis, there are so many different players there so many different mechanisms. It's just a difficult area to compete. And then even like Zolgensma, which is their gene therapy for SMA, while it did get off to a really great start and was really catching up on Spinraza, you now have Risplodam from, from Roche, which is actually growing at a greater trajectory and looks to sort of be potentially eating into a little bit of, of the interest in, in Zolgensma in terms of being the first thing that people turn to for SMA. So um, it's just, there are challenges, I think, in each of these markets that they're going into that it's not entirely clear that what Novartis has is a potential clear-cut winner in those markets. All right. Thanks for that, Stephen and Lauren. Simone's Q&A with Shuden is up on our website. We'll have Stephen's analysis of where the company stands and where it's headed coming out later this week. All right. Clean has posted some upbeat phase two ALS data. It cheered investors, it cheered patients. We'll get to that in a minute. First, I'd like to bring Steve back in. Steve has taken a look at FDA's recently released 
action plan on neurodegenerative therapies. It had a big focus on ALS. Steve, I know that the plan laid out how the agency wants to support translational research, engage with patients, explore innovative trial designs. What's the likely impact and what are patients saying about this so-called blueprint? So there's nothing in it that anybody would disagree with. They're all things that are directionally the right kind of things that patients and the medical community wants to see. They're going to support improving characterization of disease pathogenesis, natural history, facilitate patient access to new therapies, and improve clinical trial infrastructure. All those things are really important. What patients are saying is that it's not enough and it's not fast enough. And I think that there's probably also a sense that FDA isn't really in a position to be the driving force behind solving the problems of developing new therapies for neurodegenerative diseases, particularly ones that have no therapies, no really good therapies like, um, like ALS. FDA has to be in a, a part of the equation, but it's not an obvious candidate for being the quarterback. Who is then, Steve? Patients are desperate for anything, even something that works even somewhat. They want to get into trials. Many patients can't get into trials because they are excluded because they've had the disease too long. Who could step into the fold here, Steve? You know, I, I think that there's a gap. There, there's an empty space and there are opportunities. There are different people that could or different organizations that could fill the gap. There are different models for that. One model for it is the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. They had a disease that was much better defined and a little bit more obvious how to go about coming up with effective therapies, but it just wasn't happening. And the CF Foundation was founded by somebody who left NIH to do it, Bob Bell. He got a, a sufficient amount of money and he had the clarity and the drive and the vision, and he drove toward getting effective therapies. Another model is what uh, David Fagenbaum did with Castleman's disease. He was a physician and a, and a patient. He had the disease. It was a completely fatal condition at the time when he was diagnosed from it. He almost died. He led this effort to, to repurpose other drugs and to find effective therapies and saved his own life and the lives of thousands of other patients who have Castleman's disease. There are other examples, um, what Josh Summers has done with uh, the Cordoma Foundation. I think that What's really needed for any rare disease, maybe for any disease, but certainly for any rare disease, is to have a patient-driven organization that has sufficient organizational expertise and funding and can drive the search for solutions. I'm not saying that rare neurodegenerative diseases don't have that. They, they certainly have some of the best informed and most passionate patient groups. I think that they're going to make a lot more progress when they come together and figure out ways to drive the search for effective therapies. You know, they have a greater sense of urgency than anyone. They also have the credibility, I think, to kind of marshal the whole scientific community behind them. I think that's what it's going to take to really advance effective therapies for some of these terrible, rare neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, and one one uh, person in the community to watch, many listeners are probably already 
familiar with him from Twitter. I am ALS co-founder Brian Wallet. He has done remarkable things on the policy front in very uh, fast amount of time. He spoke to BioCentury's Richard Guy for Richard's piece on the ALS action plan. You could sense the frustration. Uh, one thing Brian told Richard was, look, FDA has released clinical trial guidance in 2019. Why are we only doing this action plan now? And one thing Brian points out is that drug developers have a lot of flexibility under that guidance. Drug developers can use remote monitoring, he says, reduce the number of patients on placebo, add an open label extension to every trial so any patient who feels like they are seeing a benefit can stay on treatment. I know small companies, especially during this downturn, are really tight on resources, but I believe that his organization actually has funding for some smaller companies. But let's turn to some upbeat news here, or hopefully upbeat. Lauren, you, you dug into the clean data. What did you find? Certainly upbeat. So last week, we got updated data from the open label extension study of a phase two trial from CLEAN, suggesting that there's a survival benefit. This is something that the earlier interim analyses also suggested. I think it's a little early to get too excited because this was a small phase two study. There were just over 20 patients in each arm of the trial. And last year, the main part of the study actually missed its primary endpoint which was different than the survival benefit. They were looking specifically at the change in the motor unit number index score, and they did not see the same type of improvement in that. But the CEO suggests that that may be because the patients had different types of ALS onset. I think it was over a quarter of the patients in this study did not have um, onset in their limbs. So you wouldn't see the improvement in that score. The reason I think that we should be optimistic, but not overly optimistic yet, is that there will be a readout from the the big master protocol study in ALS, the Healy ALS study, the same quarter. So within the coming weeks, I think there are about five times as many patients in the treatment arm for this therapy in that study. And just given how variable progression of ALS is, hopefully that will be positive. Hopefully we'll see a big survival benefit and benefits in the other endpoints in that trial. And, and that will be great for patients. Excellent. Lauren, your story is up online, uh, biocentury.com. You also had a story last week on what you called a base editing milestone out of Verve. Tell us a bit about why this trial start is so important. Sure. So we heard last week that Verve dosed the first patient with its therapy called Verve 101. And that is the first time that an in vivo base editor based therapy has been delivered to patients. I think it's kind of analogous to what we've seen in the gene editing space and the excitement that everyone, everyone saw around Intellia's data that was an in vivo gene editing therapy. And there's just so much curative potential in these platforms when you're delivering them in vivo. Well, the market certainly thinks so. The company's market cap crossed the billion-dollar threshold on these data. The program is Verve 101, but it's not the first new modality addressing this target, right, Lauren? No. So Verve 101 it acts by changing a single nucleotide base in the PCSK9 gene. 
in effect, it disrupts the gene, it lowers LDL. And we've seen some of the other new modalities targeting PCSK9 too. SIRNA, RNAi, these have, have also been effective. They've had some commercial problems. But the difference here is that this would hopefully be a one-time, you know, potentially curative solution to the problem. One and done. A lot of patients like to hear that. All right. Thanks for that, Lord. I know you'll keep watching this along with all the other new modalities as part of your beat. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. And don't forget to go to biocentury.com to check out the information there on our East-West Biopharma Summit coming up this November that's brought to you by BioCentury and Bay Helix. We will catch you next week. Thanks for tuning in.